Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to Bible Study, presented by Bishop James Long and sponsored by the United States Old Catholic Church. And now your host, Bishop James Long. everywhere right now and um, it is I was talking to my friends there on uh, TikTok and uh, we are we're here it's 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 all it's Wednesday 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 and I am excited to be here and I hope that you are as well I thank you so much for being here uh, I really do appreciate that I really do uh, I know that you, th- there's a lot of places that you can be you know on a Wednesday night but you have chosen to spend your time uh, here with us uh, and to learn about scripture and uh, that um, I, I, I've always told you before, and I tell you again, I don't take that lightly. The fact that you're giving your time to this community, and I say this community because it's all of us. Uh, it is our community that we are building. Uh, it's a community of friends, and we're building this network together. And I, I really do. I love that. I just because one thing that I've always I, I, and, and most of you know me it's on TikTok and, and Facebook and YouTube and Twitter is that I welcome everybody to the table, uh, everybody uh, without discrimination. There, there's I have no patience for discrimination uh, and without um, just hate. I don't like the hate and judgment and condemnation. I think we've had enough of that in this world. I truly do. I think we've had enough. And of course, now uh, with a terrible shooting uh, in Texas. We all just are all, all of our hearts just break uh, because of that. And um, I, I think what I'm just the, this is the only thing that I'm going to say about this. And then I'm going to move on. I, I, I just wish that we uh, this is not the time to politicize a tragedy. This is not the time to politicize this. There will be time to debate that right now. What all of us should do, every single one of us, is not debate gun laws or gun regulation or any of that stuff. Right now, our energy should be strictly focused on the families, the parents who lost their babies. 19 children. Two adults. 19, 19 babies. This is fourth grade. I can't imagine. 
I can't imagine. I really can't. I, I, I'm, a, I, I'm a celibate man. I have taken a, um, a vow of celibacy. Um, this was not, a, it's not a mandatory. We're, we're, we're in the United States Old Catholic Church. We're not required to be celibate, but I have taken a, a voluntarily, a, a, a vow of celibacy. But I can't imagine, can't imagine being a parent and then being told that your child is gone. I just, due to a senseless, horrible, violent, terrible tragedy, terrible, terrible tragedy. So I think now, let's just, can we please just, let's stop attacking Democrats, Republicans, independents, and the like. Let's just, let's just stop for, for, for just a moment. And let's just pray for the families who are, I can't even imagine the grief. Can't imagine it. I just, I can't. Just, um, the children are resting peacefully with God. We know this. We know that. We know that the children, a fourth grade kid, they are resting peacefully with God. But the parents and the families, um, dear Lord, I just I can't imagine. So I think what we, well, I just, let's just, I am seeing so many people use this terrible tragedy as political points. And let's just, let's just kind of, you know, let's put that to the side for a moment, if we can, and just focus our love our energy, and our prayers for the family, the families, the moms and dads, aunts, uncles, brothers, and sisters of these poor 19, 19 children. Um, I think now is the time to really think about that, okay? And we pray, may the perpetual light of Jesus shine upon them and grant them eternal rest. All right, um... So tonight, everybody, we have our Bible study, uh, as we do every Wednesday. Uh, now, I do want to remind you, here's, here's uh, I, I want to let you guys know this. Now, our Bible study will be taken from the readings uh, for, actually, technically, tomorrow's Mass, Thursdays. Uh, Thursday's Mass in the Catholic Church is Ascension. So tonight's Bible study... Um, will be on Ascension, okay? And, but, but this Sunday, I will be teaching Bible study again. It will be a totally different Bible study because that will be the seventh week of Easter. So it's going to be two different readings. So uh, if, for those of you who also like to come to Sunday Bible study, in case you miss Wednesday, uh, this Sunday is going to be completely two different readings, okay? So just, uh, just bear that in mind. Uh, in, in the in the Catholic Church, uh, we have the option to celebrate the Ascension on Sunday as well, and many many churches do that, uh, many dioceses do that. Uh, but uh, what we're going to do tomorrow, we we have the Mass, and it's Ascension, where Christ ascended into heaven. And so tonight's Bible study will be on the readings for tomorrow, okay, for Mass. And Sunday's Bible study will actually be for Sunday, 
which is the seventh week of Easter. Okay, so I just want to uh, I want to I don't you know what I don't have live mass. However, um, our Bishop Cass, who is a Franciscan, uh, he will have mass. And so tomorrow, if you go on my Facebook page, I will I will post the link to the mass. It's at six p.m. tomorrow. I will be there. Um, and so uh, it's online, it's Zoom, everyone is invited. So uh, do me a favor and write this down uh, in case you, you don't know. Uh, uh, my Facebook page, it's, well, I'll just put it here, uh, facebook.com forward slash Bishop James Long. It's the only one with me and my clerics, uh, with the new cartoon picture looking thing. Um, so anyway, uh, that's what it is, facebook.com forward slash Bishop James Long. And I will post... As a matter of fact, let me do that now, because if I don't do that now, I'm telling you, I'm naturally blonde and I will forget. I'm it just, oh, it's one of those things, folks. I, 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 I my brain, uh, it just, it happens. Um, I guess that's what happens when you get old, isn't it? <laughs> People say, you're not too old. Well, let me tell you something. I feel if I've, I, Lord knows I feel it. Okay. So let me copy this, copy link. Okay, and then I'm going to put it on my Facebook so that you can you'll know exactly where to go. You know what? I'm going to bear with me, everybody. Sorry about this. I, I really want everybody to have the opportunity because a lot of people don't get to go to mass, and I understand that. And so we we certainly want to share that with everybody. So let me put it on my Facebook right now. And oh, I don't know if I did that right. I didn't. <laughs> I tell you, I am just. Uh, Hold on, hold on, everybody, hold on. Bear with me, bear with, bear with me, everybody. Um, because if I don't, I, what will happen is if I don't do this now, then I'm going to forget it, and then it's just, then people get upset with me. So, and this is important. So, mass tomorrow. No, no, no. I don't want to start the meeting now. Um. Let's see, Mass uh, at 6 p.m. Eastern on Thursday. All right, good. And I'm going to put post this now. There we are. So I posted it <clears throat> on my Facebook page, which is facebook.com uh, forward slash Bishop James Long. And so you can join us tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, we would we would love to have you. Uh, every, everyone's uh, invited, and then um, you can participate and actually be at mass. As I said, I, I'll be there too. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, everybody. Let's get into our our, uh, our Bible study for the evening. Now, our first reading uh, is Acts, Acts chapter one, verse one through eleven. Okay, Acts chapter one, verse one through 11. And I'll give you a little opportunity to, to look that up. I know some people like to follow along while I, you know, while I'm doing the Bible study. So many of you have your own Bibles or uh, you have your app. Uh, I love the Blue Letter uh, Bible uh, app that you can get. It's downloaded it's free. It's, it's really great. It's a phenomenal app. It's called Blue Letter Bible. Um, and it really is a great app. Uh, it, it shows all kinds of different translations you can have. Uh, it's great. So again, uh, Acts chapter 1, and we're going to be covering verse 1 through 11 in the first reading. All right? So let's get into this, and um, and here we go. Yeah, and, and people are asking, if you want to visit the church, 
uh, the church's website. It's usocc.org. Yep, that would be uh, 3 p.m. Pacific. Uh, usocc.org. That's the website for the church. Uh, my website is bishopjameslong.com. Okay, so here we go. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. In the first book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus did and taught until the day he was taken up after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now he presented himself alive to them by many proofs after he had suffered, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, while, while meeting with them, he enjoined them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father about which you have heard me speak. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And when they had gathered together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he answered them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has established by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him from their sight. And while they were looking intently at the sky as he was going, suddenly two men dressed white in white garments stood beside them, They said, men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking at the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will return in the same way as you have seen him going into heaven. And if we were at at Mass, we'd say the word of the Lord. And then the response. Okay, um, thanks be God. So let me just explain this a little bit so I can give you a little understanding all right, and this is important to look. Remember, it's very important for me. Uh, I love history. I love history. Uh, I'm just—I'll I, admit—I'm a history nerd. Uh, I can admit it, and especially biblical history. I, when, if I can—if I can get my hands on a book on biblical history, I, that, that's my like, woohoo! This is Super Bowl time. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, really, it's, I, I, that's how much I love love history, but. And I try to pass on what I have learned on to you. So let me give you a little understanding of this particular passage, okay? Acts has been called the Gospel of Luke, Volume 2, in that it takes over from where St. Luke stopped when writing his Gospel with the ascension forming the hinge point. Now, St. Luke, he's a, he was a very educated man, by the way. Yeah, he was a, a physician. He was a doctor by profession. Uh, he was meticulous. He was very orderly. And he sets out in Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to prove the truth of the apostles' teaching and show how rapidly that teaching spread. It recounts the church's expansion, which particularly among the Gentiles was marked by miracles, thus bearing out what our Lord had foretold. Remember, he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. So today's reading, which documents Jesus' ascension, records Jesus' last words to his disciples, which includes this foretelling of the expansion of his church. 
And hello to all you guys. Okay, so let me break it down into the verses, okay? So I can explain the verses to you. So it says, in the first book. So, so what, what does that mean? Well, we're talking about that's the gospel of Luke. So remember, uh, the Acts is like the, considered the second volume. So the, he's, he's referring to the gospel of Luke. So in the first book, the gospel of Luke. Theophilus. Now, who, who is Theophilus? Well, what really who Theophilus is, um, is really unknown. Although both Luke's gospel and this book are addressed to him. So there's a lot of debate as who is this Theophilus? And it continues, I dealt with all that Jesus did and taught until the day he was taken up after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them by many proofs after he had suffered. Um, now, in, in the Greek, the uh, passion actually translated as passion. It's translated here as suffered. It refers to Jesus' integral passion death experience, what we're talking about. And he continues, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Well, this is important because 40 in Hebrew numerology is a number representing transition or change. So 40 years is considered a generation. The flood was 40 days and 40 nights. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. The Hebrews wandered in the desert for 40 years. And remember, Jesus was tempted for 40 days. So 40 is all about transitioning, changing. Verse 4 says, While meeting with them, he enjoined them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Lord about which you have heard me speak. By the way, Luke is referring to Luke 24, verse 49. And when Jesus said, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with the power from on high. So that's what Luke is echoing here. Five, and this is, John, uh, this is Jesus still speaking. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay. This actually refers back to John's statement in Luke chapter 3, verse 16. Remember when it says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is John speaking. This precisely demonstrates the prophecies, fulfillment, and makes John the Baptist the herald of the church as well as uh, the herald of the Messiah. 6 says, when they had gathered together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Well, that's a good question. Well, this question is of present concern of Luke's community. A lot of people are asking this question. What is being stressed as the disciples' mistaken hope is not a worldly or nationalistic a kingdom as much as of a hope of an immediate end, immediate time in in a time to which the outpouring of the spirit was to lead. So they were thinking, is this it? Is this the end? Is this, is this the end of times? And he answered them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons 
that the Father has established by his own authority. Boy, I think, uh, I wish more clergy would read this passage. I truly do. Because in social media, it, we are, it, it, there's a plethora of videos where people who are pastors, preachers, and for some reason they just think they have this answer as to when the end is going to happen. And they try to convince everybody. They know the answer. They know when it's going to happen. They, they're, folks, no, they're not telling the truth. They're not telling the truth. Because if, if they were telling the truth, then they would realize that they're calling Jesus a liar. And what I mean by that is because Jesus made it very clear. He answered them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has established by his own authority. And yet, so many people will immediately jump on social media and say, see, this is happening, this is happening, this is, I know the exact date, it's going to happen on this time, and that's clickbait. That's all it is. That's all it is. It's clickbait. They just want you to click it so they can get lots of views, so they can make money off the video. Folks, don't fall for that trap. It's nonsense. It, Jesus said, no one knows the hour or the day. It's very clear. He made it, and he said it again. But it seems like these people who go on social media, they just love to scare you, don't they? They just love to prove, guarantee, I know when it's going to happen. I know when it's No, you don't. No, you don't. Stop telling people you do, because that's a lie. I wish people would read this a little bit more, especially pastors who preach that they have the answer for the end of times. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So the Spirit is the substitute for the end of times. The Spirit is the principle of continued Christian existence in an era of sacred history, the era of the church and mission. And Jesus continues, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, by the way, Jerusalem is the geographic center of sacred history. And the influence of the church will spread in three geographical stages. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus was saying. And 9 says, when he had said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him from their sight. It's a, they actually saw this. This was a, visu- a visible departure. They saw the ascension. And 10 then says, and while they were looking intently at the sky as he was going, suddenly two men dressed in white garments stood beside them. It's interesting, too, <laughs> because Luke Remember, Luke is very methodical, and Luke does everything in twos, everything. And this brings to mind the finding of the empty tomb in Luke 24, verse 4, and the transfiguration in Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 30. Remember the empty, the empty tomb where they ask, why do, you, why do you look for the living among the dead? And 11 says, they said, men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking at the sky? This Jesus, who had been taken up from you into heaven, will return 
in the same way as you have seen him going into heaven. Well, the end of times. But this is now the time where Jesus ascended to the Father. And again, hello to all you guys. All right, uh, so let's get into our second reading, and then uh, I'll give you some background to that as well. Our second reading is Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 through 23. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, and that's verses 17 through 23. Okay, so I'll give you a little bit of time to look that up. And uh, to open your app, Ephesians chapter 1, the first chapter, and we're going to be covering verses 17 through 23. Okay. So let's go into this. It says here in 17, May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation resulting in knowledge of him. May the eyes of your hearts be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope that belongs to his call. What are the riches of glory in his inheritance among the Holy One? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power for us who believe? In accord with the exercise of his great might, which he worked in Christ, raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavens, far above every principality, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things beneath his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who feels all things in every way. Okay, and if we were at uh, Mass, we'd say the word of the Lord. Okay, so let me give you a little background on this, okay, on Ephesians. So today, remember, this is for the readings for tomorrow's Mass, the Ascension. So uh, toward the end of his second uh, mission, um, missionary journey, that this is in the, roughly in the year uh, A.D. 52, St. Paul stayed for a while in Ephesus. And one of the great, Ephesus was one of the great cities of Asia Minor, and where he preached and founded the church to which this letter is addressed. Now, shortly after this, a distinguished personality, Apollos, appeared in Ephesus. And he received instruction from uh, Aquila and his, uh, and his wife Priscilla, uh, two disciples of Paul. And he, in turn, prepared the ground for Paul's preaching on his third missionary journey. Now, Paul's visit was not without incident. Uh, he was actually forced to leave the city because of an uproar caused by Demetrius, the the silversmith. Uh, Paul did not forget the Ephesians, however, and from Rome he wrote this letter. Now, Paul's main purpose in writing seems to um, explore the great mystery of the redemption, of which Christ himself is the cornerstone, the foundation of the entire spiritual building into whom all Christians should be built. So what we hear described in today's reading is Jesus' position in heaven after the ascension. Okay? So that explains, so now that you have that background, this explains this reading to you. 17. 
may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Now, by the way, the phrase Father of glory occurs only here in the New Testament. But Acts chapter 7, verse 2 calls him God of glory. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 says, Lord of glory. Okay, uh, give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation resulting in knowledge of him. Now, this is important because what, what is Paul saying here? Not knowledge merely of God's plan, but knowledge of him. It's, it's an experience of God's great love for us in Christ that would be visibly shown in true brotherhood and sisterhood of all. Uh, St. Jerome said this, and it's quite beautiful. Uh, St. Jerome said this in, in 386. He said, it is this God of the incarnate man who is the father of glory, wisdom and truth, who gives the spirit of wisdom and revelation to those who believe in his son so that they may become wise and contemplate the glory of the Lord with unveiled face. When this wisdom and revelation have made them wise and open to them the mysteries that were hidden, it follows at once that they have the eyes of their heart enlightened. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, 18 says, may the eyes of your hearts be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope that belongs to his call, that are the riches of glory in his inheritance among the Holy One. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the members of, 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 of Jesus' church. Not only the church on earth, but in purgatory, the church's suffering, and in heaven as well. 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power for us who believe? God's mighty power overcomes humanly impossible obstacles, is what, what Paul is saying. So it says here, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power for us who believe? In accord with the exercise of his great might, which he worked in Christ, raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavens. So the raising and seating are continuous action. Far above every principality, authority, power, and dominion. Now, what, what Paul is referring to angelic beings. Angelic beings who were thought to control the world and who were created through the wisdom of God. Now, St. John Christendom uh, said something that's really phenomenal. He said, um, roughly around 393 or so, he said, he says not merely above, but far above. For God is higher than the powers on high. So he led him up there, the very one who shared our lowly humanity. He led him from the lowest depth to the highest sovereignty, beyond which there is no higher honor. Above every authority, he says, not merely compared with this or that, with gnats. What gnats are compared with humans? So is this the whole creation compared with God? That's powerful. And he continues, and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
So not it's, it's no present or future force or power can block God's work. And, and I want the, this is very, very important to people need to understand. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. The reason, folks, every time, and I've said this a million times, for some reason in our culture, in our world today, we are putting demons here. And we are putting God down here. We have to stop that nonsense. We just have to knock that off. I, I don't understand where this this began or how it started or how it got. I don't understand it, but I don't understand why we're putting demons here. Because when I talk to people and they tell me that they're having issues in their home, and I say, well, have you prayed? Oh, yeah. What do you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't understand that. What do you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, have you called upon God? Well, yeah, but what do you mean? There's a There's no but to this. There's no, there's no, but it's almost when you, have you called upon St. Michael? Have you called upon St. Benedict? Have you, well, yeah, but, and it's like demons, 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 God, we're way down here. We got to knock, what is this? What is this nonsense? We got to stop that. We got to absolutely stop that. Because God is the creator of all things, the Alpha, the Omega. He's the great, there, there is no greater power than God. None. And so this idea that we are elevating demons above God, no, 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 no. That's heretical. You gotta, that, that's got to stop. That's got to stop. Because what you're doing, ultimately, is you're victimizing yourself. By elevating demons above God. You need to realize that the moment you begin to pray, the moment you begin to utter God's name, the, the, the moment you begin to say in the name of Jesus Christ, you need to understand that demons tremble with fear. And you need to believe. I don't understand. I, I just don't get it. I, I'm, not, I'm not quite... It's, it's, it's Greek to me. I don't understand why people... The moment you declare in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to leave. And that's it. The conversation is over. There's, there's, there's no more conversation. You have just invoked the name of God. And the demons, whether they like it or not, they must obey. And they will obey. And they're fearful because the name of Yeshua of Nazareth frightens them terribly. Because they know the end result of what's going to happen at the end of the age. They know that they're going to be defeated. So we got to stop this nonsense thinking that demonic entities have more power than God. No, absolutely not. The moment you begin to pray is the moment demons begin to tremble. And if you don't understand that, then you really, really need to find someone who can teach you demonology. Because you're elevating them far too high. Far too high. All right, 22 says, And he put all things, all, th- all things beneath his feet and gave him a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of one who fills all things in every way. So the church is the body. Christ is the head. Uh, St. John also said this, uh, St. John Christendom said, 
oh, how high he, he has raised the church. For as he were lifting it by some stage machine, he has led it up to a high, great height and installed it on that throne. For we, where he is the head, there is the body. Okay, so this is our, um, that is our second reading. Now, our gospel today, everybody, is Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, verse 46 through 53. All right? And it's, it's true, because to thrive with the fear of demons, and I hate to say it, it's almost as if they enjoy it. They give demons too much power. Give way, you give demons way too much power. And if you're going to give demons the power, they're going to take it. I've said it for years. If you keep thinking, oh, this is happening, this is happening, and that's happening, and you say, oh, the demon did this, the demons did this, the demons did this, and the demons may happen to have nothing to do with that. Nothing. People always say, well, Bishop Long, you know, this... Uh, my car broke down. Do you think it's demons? No. I think your car broke down because it's mechanical. Remember, I've said this before. And if someone came to me and said, well, my wife, I lost my job. My wife left me and, uh, my, do- and my dog ran away. Well, after talking to him and after li- listening to his story, I said, and he, and he, demons, 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 demons made me lose my job. Demons made my wife leave me. Demons laid my, you know, caused my, uh, the, my dog to, to leave. And demons are doing this and demons. I said, will you stop it? Just stop. And of course, went. <laughs> he was like, huh? Okay, you know. I said, you are, you're giving the demons credit for everything. You are, you are victimizing yourself. You are making yourself a victim right now. And the, and the demons are sitting back thinking, well, yeah, we'll, we'll take credit. <laughs> well, absolutely. No, I don't. <laughs> Do I think the accident was demons? No. But because the demons are saying, well, yeah, we'll, we'll sit back and yeah, <clears throat> sure, absolutely. We, we, sure, well, Bob, yeah, we caused your, your wife to, to, to leave you. Sure, absolutely. We caused you to, to lose your job. Yeah, absolutely. They may have nothing to do with it. Because after I, the reason I told this guy, will you just stop it? I told him, I said, you lost your job because you kept calling in sick. You just told me you kept calling in sick. You, you were intoxicated. You're constantly calling in sick. You're calling, I mean, all the time. You were drunk at work and you got fired. That's why you got fired. And your wife left you because you just told me you cheated on her. And your dog ran away because you left the gate open. This is why you lost your job. This is why your wife left you. And this is why your dog ran away. Well, next time, don't you know, get some help for your addiction. You, you got to get that help. You deserve that help. You need the help. Get the help. Stop cheating on Stop If you get into another relationship, don't cheat on her. And for the love of goodness gracious, keep the, 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 uh, chain locked or, or the, the the gate closed then your dog won't run away or or if, you, if it's a house dog keep him in the house we we immediately all the time all the time people all the time go to if they have a hard time in life it's demons these demons just what you're doing is you're victimizing yourself and not only that but then you are giving demons 
more power over you. The power that they don't have in the first place. You are giving the invitation for them to have power over you. Don't you see that? We always talk about the invitation, but demonic, I know this is not, because again, demonology has nothing to do with paranormal. Demonology is theological. But I've said this a million times to people. You know, you, 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 give an, you accidentally give the invitation for an attachment. But then what you do is you're also giving the invitation for them to control you, for them to manipulate you by immediately saying, Everything is demons. I stubbed my toe. Oh, that's a demon. I got stung by a bee. That's a demon bee. Come on. Literally, someone told me that once. They got stung by a bee and they were convinced that the demon did it. But yet they didn't tell you. The rest of the story is there was a beehive and they knocked the, 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 the beehive down and they got stung. And they were convinced that it was a demon. Have you ever thought that maybe you just knocked the thing down and they got ticked off and they stung you? So what you're doing is you're giving the invitation not only for the demonic to invite itself into your life, but now you're giving the invitation for the demonic to control you. That's a big no-no. Remember, the moment you begin to pray, the moment you begin to utter the name of Jesus Christ is the moment demons tremble in fear. And if you can't visualize that, then you absolutely need to stay away from demonology altogether. Okay, uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 46 <clears throat> through 53, everybody. Yeah, allergies are good old Kentucky. Um, that's where I'm based at now in Kentucky and allergies, uh, definitely are, are interesting here in Kentucky. Well, thank you, Michelle. <coughs> You're right. You're right, Rich. Okay. Luke 24, uh, verse 46 through 53, everybody. And he, Jesus said to them, to them, his disciples, thus it is written that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in the name, in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, raised his hands and blessed them. And he blessed them. He parted from them and was taken up to heaven. They did him homage and then returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising God. And if we are at mass, of course, tomorrow we'll say gospel of the Lord. Um, yeah, I want to remind everybody, we are having Mass tomorrow. Uh, it is online. You can watch it. Uh, I will be there, and I'll be doing the intercessions. Uh, Father uh, Bishop Cass, who is a Franciscan, uh, will be uh, the presider. And uh, you can go to my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Bishop James Long. Bishop James Long, all one word. 
and uh, I put the link up there for you. That's tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard. Tomorrow, the church celebrates Ascension. Okay, so let me give you a little bit of background here. Um, like was said in the introduction to our first reading, Luke and Acts form two continuous volumes of the, of the history of the church. The Ascension, which tomorrow we're going to celebrate, forms the hinge point between the two volumes. Remember in our first reading, we heard the beginning of the book of Acts, where the Ascension is recounted, and here in our gospel, reading, we hear that the end of, uh, we hear that the end of the gospel of Luke, where this same Ascension is described. Okay, so 46 says, and he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, thus it is written that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all the nations. How is it possible for the Messiah to preach to all nations? He'll do it through his church. Jesus is the Messiah in a real and total sense, because God's salvation goes to the ends of the earth through him. It continues beginning from Jerusalem. Now remember, as I said earlier, Jerusalem is the center of Judaism uh, because it contains the temple. Since Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, it becomes the geographic center from which Christianity spreads. 48 says, you are witnesses of these things. So in order for a fact to be attested uh, in, uh, attested to in court, there had to be at that time, two or more witnesses are required. That's Deuteronomy. That's the law. Jesus also always has witnesses when he approaches a life and death uh, situation, including eternal life. Uh, so here the statement is addressed to more than just the eleven. So Luke 24, verse 9 says that when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. And Luke 24, verse 33 says, there they found the 11 and those with them assembled together. So it's to everyone. 49 says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is talking about. But he says, but stay in that in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. Um, <clears throat> the Mount of Olives is near Bethany. And Acts chapter 1 verse 12 infers that this is where the ascension took place. You know, this is important uh, because a lot of people need to really, especially clergy, ministers, they need to read this very, very carefully and understand it. This also is a commandment from Christ to remain. For if you're a seminarian, if you are studying to be, a, he is telling people to learn, be patient, be filled with the Holy Spirit before you go out. Ordination. We have far too many people who are going out claiming to be clergy and ministers who have no idea what they're talking about. We have we have we have clergy who are saying, which is concerning, saying that um, the crucifixion wasn't necessary. 
that's a problem. Because if you read Scripture, then you understand that Christ fulfilled prophecy. And it's very, very troubling, very troubling that people who are ministers don't understand that. All right, so he said, raise his hands and bless them. So this is the only place in St. Luke's Gospel where Jesus blesses people. Isn't that interesting? There seems to be a a conscious allusion to Sirach, chapter 50, verse 20 through 24. Is there a significance like the blessing Abraham received from the priest King Melchizedek? I think so. 51 says, as he blessed them, he parted from them and was taken up to heaven. They did him homage. So in other words, this is the first and only time Luke says that the disciples worshipped Jesus. Compare this with the first reading. The reading ends with worship. Acts shows that they must leave the posture of worship and then travel with the good news. So it tells us that Christianity, in this case, and in all cases, remember, Christianity is a noun, and it is a verb. It is not enough to just simply declare yourself a Christian. Your actions must show it. And finally, says, then he returned to Jerusalem with, and then returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually uh, in the temple praising God. Very powerful, very powerful stuff. Well, thank you, Michelle. I, I appreciate that. Um, now that's that's very nice. That's that's one of the greatest compliments that I have always said that someone can give uh, anybody is that they've helped you grow closer to God. So thank you very much. That's very nice. All right, let me give you my homily, everybody, and then we're going to go into our revelations uh, for a top, at the top of the hour here. Um, now, tomorrow, again, the church uh, celebrates Ascension. But, you know, th- th- today, we, we t- tomorrow we're, we're going to do a strange thing. We celebrate our Savior's departure from earth. So he became man. And was born on Christmas. That's what we celebrate, but technically, if you want to be historical about it, probably was on October uh, because it talks about how the sheep were grazing in the field and the sheep would not have been grazing in December because it would have been too cold. They would have been in the barn, but I guess. For 30 years, he lived a hidden life in Nazareth, sharing the mundane struggles experienced by every working family. For three years, he traveled around Israel preaching the gospel. His word, performing miracles, training his 12 apostles. Then when that work was finished, he redeemed fallen humanity. He reversed the tragedy of original sin through his sacrificial passion and death. Finally, to guarantee the trustworthiness of his teaching and his sacrifice, he rose from the dead and appeared to his followers multiple times. But 40 days later, which corresponds technically tomorrow, with his disciples and apostles gathered around him on the mountaintop, Jesus mysteriously ascended back into heaven, back to his father's side, 
back to where he had come from at the moment of the incarnation. And tomorrow we celebrate that. But shouldn't we mourn it instead? Shouldn't we regret and be sad that he is no longer among us physically? Doesn't it seem that he has abandoned us? That's what people say. Jesus abandoned you. He left us. Shouldn't we be upset about that? Not at all. No. And anybody who is upset about that, let me help you out. In, t- in today's preface, preface uh, that the priest uh, tomorrow certainly will say uh, at the start of the Eucharistic prayer, and, and the church tells us why, Christ has passed beyond our sight, not to abandon us, but to be our hope. Christ is the beginning, the head of the church. Where he has gone, we hope to follow. Folks, if Jesus had not ascended into heaven, body and soul, humanity and divinity, we would not be able to hope for our heaven ourselves. The ascension is the direct source of our hope. It means that we are never alone, ever. You know, many years ago, uh, there lived a, a very poor family in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. Beautiful. I don't know. If, you have, if you've never been to uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina, they're just gorgeous. But th- there was a very poor family there and um, by the name of Carpenter. Uh, the oldest boy, well, he loved the outdoors and, and knew them very well. But he didn't really know much else. I mean, that was his life. I mean, he was, a, he was a teenager before his father took him on his first trip to the city where he saw paved streets, skyscrapers, electricity for the first time. Imagine that. So, I mean, this, this is a, a woodsy boy. He was in the wilderness all his life. That's all he knew. And now he's seeing paved streets and, ele- and skyscrapers, electricity. Imagine his mind just being blown at that. I mean, his father arranged for him. I mean, the boy wanted to stay there, though. He wanted to stay there. He wanted to get an education. So his father arranged for him to board with some family friends who generously financed his studies when he decided he wanted to become a doctor. So he graduated with honors, but he declined all job offers to practice medicine in the city, which he would have made a lot of money. No, he said, no, every job offer in the city from the high salary to the low, he all, he declined them all. He said he was going back to the mountains where there were many sick people and very few doctors. You know, for many years, he ministered to the sick. Some paid, but most couldn't, so he didn't receive payment. He gave his very best and helped everybody he could, regardless of who they were, how rich or how poor they were. And in his old age, he was in broken health himself. He was was almost penniless himself. He was very poor. And two small rooms above the town grocery store were his, that was his own home and office. That was it. That's all he had. And at the foot of the creaky stairs leading up to his office was a sign with these words. Dr. Carpenter is upstairs. So one morning, someone climbed those stairs to find 
this beloved doctor had passed away. Oh, the entire community was just plunged in grief. I mean, they were grief-stricken. They, he was so beloved. They wanted to create some kind of monument for him, something. But they decided to simply write these words on a large tombstone. Dr. Carpenter is upstairs. He wanted people to know that he was always present for them, right up the stairs. You know, Jesus is our divine doctor for our souls. He is upstairs in heaven where he ascended after his resurrection. But he is still alive and eager to help, to help us through the the sacraments, the Bible, the church. Every time we turn to him in prayer, we climb the stairs to his office. Because he is in heaven. But Jesus is always in, always. You know, one of life's most persistent temptations Sometimes we can be hypocrites, can't we? Hypocrites say one thing and do another thing. There are two, really, there are two brands of hypocrites. The first kind of hypocrite makes sure that they act and look like decent Christians when other people are watching. But they give in to self-centered tendencies and selfishness when they're alone. The second kind do the contrary. When they are alone, they live like true Christians but when they're around other people, you know, at work or school or at the club, they hide their faith, convictions, embarrassed by it. All of us are tempted sometimes in both these ways. Whenever we give in to the temptation, we sadden our Lord. We weaken the church. We tear apart our own souls. The longer our hypocrisy goes unchecked, the more divided we become on the inside. Soon we're following in the steps of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde instead of the steps of Christ, destroying ourselves and and wounding those around us. The ascension saves us from hypocrisy. Because of the ascension, we know that Christ, our Lord and Savior, our one truly trustworthy friend, is always with us and watching over us. Well, excellent, Daniel, excellent. You know, Christ is in our hearts when we are alone, ready to give us strength to live with integrity and self-mastery. He is at our side when we're surrounded by other people, ready to encourage us to live with sincerity and humility and not be embarrassed that we're followers of Christ. This is what he meant when he said, And behold, I am with you always, until the end of age. Look, folks, if we choose to stay aware of his presence, our divided lives will gradually be unified. We will escape the treadmill of hypocrisy. And peace of wisdom will flood our souls. So every day, today, tomorrow, next day, next month, next year. Let us be proud that we are followers of Christ. Let us truly believe and know that he walked on this earth. He lived our life 
he suffered terribly. But he destroyed sin and death for all of us. The grave is no longer victorious over us. And it is through Christ, our eternal doctor, who is always, always in heaven and always upstairs. And all we need to do is reach out to him when we're feeling overwhelmed, when we need a doctor to heal our physical bodies, when we need a doctor to heal our spiritual sickness, whatever struggle that we're going through, whether it be loneliness, sadness, grief, that is a time to reach out to Christ. Because I assure you, my friends, there is no greater doctor than our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And may Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, everybody. So, we're going to get into our revelation. Uh, yeah, we're going to uh, have a good time here. We're almost, we're almost finished with revelation, folks. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, jumping into um, chatting with you guys soon about, um, oh, gosh, we're all. We're almost, uh, yeah, let me just, let me check this. Hold on one second. Oh, 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 oh. Sorry, I got to move this out of the way. There we go. Um, yeah, we're going to be getting into the Trinity uh, after we get into, after we finish this, which that's, uh, that's going to be a very, that's a, it's, it's a humdinger, but we're going to, I'll do the best that I can uh, with the, with the Trinity, because that's, um, that is one that many, many, many pastors say, nope, I'm not going to touch that one with a 10 foot pole because it's very, very, um, a very confusing doctrine to many. And I understand that. I understand. So hopefully I will, uh, be able to uh, explain it to the best of my ability. Um, on oh, the medical training, well, of course, um, they had, well, of course, the pen depends on Tom, you're talking about, um, uh, uh, in Jesus' time, uh, Luke was a, do- was a, uh, a physician. And, of course, then uh, in, the, in the mountains, uh, back in the day, you know, 1890s or so, you know, they had, uh, uh, they had doctors as well. Yeah, I, well, you know, uh, people are are so convinced that the end of time is is near. It's got to happen. Um, but I, you know, I I always tell people don't don't panic about that. Don't panic about when the end of time is going to happen. It's going to happen when it does, and we can't we have no control of that. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't we have, we don't know if it's going to happen tomorrow. Jesus made it very clear that no one knows. No one knows the hour or time. Nobody knows. Nobody knows the day or time. Nobody. Uh, only the Father. And, and that's good enough for me. I don't need to know. Because that's not, that's not what is important for me. What's important is that I try to spread the, the, the gospel. I try to spread love and compassion to everyone. And that is my goal in life. Worrying about when the end of time is going to come. I, that is, I, just, I have no worry about that at all. I, that doesn't even enter my mind. It really truly doesn't. Um, some people are so overwhelmed with it. Let that go. Let it go. Let, if you are so panic stricken and worried about it, just let it go because you can't control it. 
You can't control it. The end of time is going to happen when it comes. And that's okay. If, if, you know, if it happens now, okay, it happens now. I'm ready to go. I'm just, don't be, don't be worried about that. Don't be panicked. You don't need to know the end of times. You don't, you don't need to know when, because Jesus was obviously as God, he's wise. To, he's, he's reminding you, this is, don't be panicked about it. It's not something you should be panicked about. That's why Jesus told us, you don't need to know the time. You don't need to know the day or the hour. It's not necessary to know that. What is necessary is that you love people. Love one another as I have loved you. Love your God with all your heart, your soul, mind, and body. And leave the rest up to God. Right? Let's just leave that up to God. And... um. You know, I, I think so many people, I think people are afraid of how it's going to happen, whether it be nuclear power or sickness or, you know, but again, whatever the situation is, whatever it is, however it comes about, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. Because Jesus promises us eternal life if we believe in him. So if you believe in Christ, if you believe in him, then leave the worrying alone. I always tell Miss Wilma, you worry about the things you can control. Let go of the things that you can't. We can't control when the end's going to happen. It'll happen when it does. Until then, The only thing you can control is how you're going to treat people. That's the only thing how you can control. You can control, you can treat people with hate and anger or with love. Okay. So let's go into the, our, um, back into the revelation. Remember the, we, where we left off the sheep were Gentiles we were talking about sheep and uh, Jesus leading the sheep out. They were Gentiles who cared for the needs of unbelieving Jews during this time of tribulation. So they cared for the sick. They gave up valuable water when supply was short, the clothing when, when none existed during this time, visited persecuted Jews in prison. So such acts of mercy would have been incredibly dangerous, potentially suicidal at this time during the Antichrist reign of terror. Yet these Gentiles took it upon themselves to support the Jews when no one else would. And as such, because the instrument of God to support his people from a distance to preserve them to the end, they, that's what they became the instrument of God. So why would a Gentile during the reign of the Antichrist, why would they take such a risk to protect Jews from during a time when Satan is actively trying to destroy this people group? Because their faith in Christ led them to support God's people in a desperate time. You know, a Gentile with faith in Christ, us, would be motivated to help the Jews under these circumstances based on what? The word of God. But interestingly enough, here, here this is interesting. These, the, the sheep will be so absent, uh, uh, absent um, discipline the ship during the, the tribulation that they are actually surprised to learn they're rewarded, the Gentiles. Is it possible for a believer to come to faith and yet not understand what they believe? Yeah. Because see, the book of Acts 
is full of stories of such people. Remember, the spirit brings life, and faith doesn't depend on spiritual maturity, thankfully. When mature believers are rare and persecution is common, it's typical for not for new believers to fail to, to get proper instruction. And, and even in normal circumstances, it takes time to mature in understanding how to follow Christ. But these believers have neither instruction nor time. So they simply live in the Spirit and do what they feel led to do, and it bears fruit. This is, again, when the Antichrist is now coming down very, very hard on the Jews and attacking, and, and Gentiles are helping. But they don't realize that they're serving Christ in these, in these things until the moment when Jesus tells them they were serving him. Every act of mercy in the end of time and now, every act of mercy is an act of service to Christ. So the, the Gentiles came to faith by the Spirit, but lacked someone to explain their faith clearly during this time. So nevertheless, they were motivated to protect Israel and help God's people, which is the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, uh, lastly, Jesus attends to the unbelieving Gentiles. In Matthew 25, verse 41, it says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. By the way, this whole idea, and I've said this a million times, the whole idea that the church created the devil and angels is a big, fat lie. It's a big, fat lie. Because before the church was even created uh, formally, in this, in this case, well, certainly we know the Roman church, the, the scripture in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation, Jesus mentions the devil and, angel, and, and fallen angels all the time. All the time. Matthew 25, 42 says, For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick. And in prison, you do not visit me. Then they themselves will, will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or strict or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you, uh, that you did not do it to the one, the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteousness and eternal life. So in contrast to the first group, these Gentiles lack the fruit of the Spirit since they didn't have faith. They are called goats, the non-sheep, and they go away into eternal punishment. And these Gentiles are instantly killed and enter the first eternal destination, hell. And later they will enter the lake of fire. So the believing Gentiles are going to live and be welcomed into the kingdom, while the unbelieving Gentiles who did not help who are selfish and greedy, are to die immediately and enter hell and wait for the second resurrection. This gives rise to an interesting fact concerning the kingdom. In the kingdom, there will be natural-born men and women entering the kingdom. Now, remember, I said last week that there may be natural-bodied Jews, and now we see for certain that there will be natural-bodied Gentiles. As a natural human beings, they still carry sin in their bodies, and they will be capable of marriage and producing children during this time. And when they reproduce, they will reproduce children, just like we reproduce sinful unbelievers. This is during the time, the end of times. On the other hand, all resurrected saints occupy eternal bodies and cannot sin. 
have, they cannot have children. And we are called to rule over the natural world of sinners and the sin of offering they produce. So what we're going to do now is we're going to move into the kingdom uh, period time, beginning with a discussion of the kingdom's purpose. So now the kingdom has, has been set. The table has been set. And now we're going to begin the study of Christ's kingdom on earth. And I've been teaching Revelation, gosh, for the past, what, three, four months now for quite some time. So if you missed anything, you can go back to my Facebook page, scroll all the way down, you can watch it. Because I explain everything in detail in Revelation. So now we're going to talk about Christ's kingdom on earth, which follows 75 days after his return to the earth. So all preparations have been made for the kingdom to start. The earth has been restored to beauty. The temple has been cleansed, rebuilt in a new and better way. The evil of the world has been set aside, at least for a time. And the citizens of the kingdom, me and you, were present and ready to receive our inheritance. All resurrected saints from the Old Testament church and tribulation are entering the kingdom, as well as those believers who did not die in tribulation. And all the unbelievers, which are only Gentiles at this point, are sent to Hades. So now we get to learn about the kingdom. And if we turn to the book of Revelation to study that time, we'll be greatly disappointed by what we find. Why? I'll tell you. So returning to the place where we left off, here's all we'll find. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the final in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Okay, in verse six, we learn what happens before the kingdom begins. And in verse 7, we learn what happens after the kingdom ends. So the book of Revelation tells us nothing about what happens during the thousand years of the kingdom. So the entire kingdom period takes place between verse 6 and 7 in the book of Revelation. The only thing the book of Revelation tells us about the kingdom is the length of that time, a thousand years. So the reason Revelation virtually ignores the details of the kingdom is because the rest of the Bible is literally filled with those details. The kingdom is described in the Torah and it's a major theme of the Old Testament prophets and Psalms. So there's no reason to rehash it. Jesus offers tantalizing details in many of his parables and other teaching, by the way. And even when the epistle writers gives us a few details. So we must venture outside the book of Revelation for the next two weeks or so to examine the life and times of the kingdom. What happens in this thousand years? Well, let's begin by remembering what the term kingdom means in the Bible. Many Christians operate with a very limited and superficial understanding of their own eternal future. So the concept of the kingdom or heaven is largely limited to sometimes hallmark theology. As a result, our understanding is largely void of substance or meaning. Now, ironically, the Bible speaks extensively about the, the coming kingdom using a variety of terms and, descript, and descriptions uh, and pictures uh, of, or shadows. So, in fact, the, the coming kingdom is one of the most important themes of the Old Testament, second only to the Messiah. 
And we can find these references literally from Genesis to Malachi. And in the, in the, in the New Testament, discussion of the kingdom were tremendously important to Jesus's ministry. You know, there are, I think there are 160 mentions of the kingdom in the New Testament. And 125 of those mentions are found in the Gospels. So Jesus talked of entering the kingdom, living in the kingdom, ruling in the kingdom, and having an inheritance in the kingdom. Paul, by the way, Paul also taught that we would receive our inheritance in the kingdom when Christ returns. So now Revelation has told us that the kingdom is a thousand years long. So if we look at the Bible's teaching about the kingdom across all these references, we find the concept of the kingdom progressing. So the, the, the kingdom concept transitions through four stages of meaning from Old Testament to the New Testament. And, and it's important to recognize these transition points to arrive at a proper interpretation. So the kingdom theme begins in Genesis as a promise, something God would do to correct for the sin of Adam. Now, that promise is clearly articulated uh, in the um, Abraham and, and, and the Davidic covenants. The nation of Israel would enjoy an inheritance of land, a prosperity of descendants, a perfect king, unending peace. And many generations of believers in Israel looked forward to the future fulfillment of that promise. We see this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen, having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So in other words, then the time came to fulfill that promise and the Lord came to Israel offering the kingdom in that day. Remember, Jesus made Israel promise. Accept me as your king and I will give you the promised kingdom. But Israel rejected their king. And Matthew even mentions this. And as a result, Jesus withdrew his proposal and the kingdom was taken from that generation of Israel. So in their place, the kingdom proposal was given to the Gentiles who became the bride of Christ. So the proposal of the kingdom was temporarily withdrawn and its place emerged a program of recruiting Gentiles to join the kingdom. So this program advances the call to believe in Jesus. And as a person obeys the call, they become part of the spiritual kingdom. No, Mackenzie. Now they become citizens of a heavenly kingdom that is not of the world. And this program, so we're going to, we're going to basically, we're going to continue until the Lord puts an end to it by calling his bride to heaven, the resurrection. So, so then as we have studied, if you remember, the Lord will return to the earth a second time. And at that point, the kingdom will appear as promised. So at that, uh, at that point in the kingdom will be, uh, become a literal pray, place, just as, as God promised to Abraham and his descendants. It will exist on earth in the future, and it will also include many women from all the nations. And this is also a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham when God said all nations would be blessed through him. So the concept of a kingdom progresses from a promise to a proposal to a program and finally to a place. 
So at the point we have reached in Revelation, we have seen the program come to an end at the rapture. And now we see the kingdom begin at Christ's second coming. And in, and in this time to come, all the good things the Lord has promised to his people will finally be fulfilled. We wait for the kingdom to see his promises fulfilled because those promises were always set in the time, not in this one. So it's time to learn about that place, a very real world. Now think about this, this heaven that we will inherit. A very real world, not an imaginary one, that we will inhabit for a thousand years. In that time, we will enjoy that time in a home that we call ours with land, possessions that can never be taken away. We'll be absent from disease and sorrow for there will be nothing about us or the world to disturb our peace or joy. We will have meaningful work that is not hard and laborious. We will have relationships and natural beauty to enjoy and we will know worship, and serve the Lord in ways we can't even imagine today. Look, we can't exactly say, we can't, we can't say exactly what the earth and seas look like after the restoration. We don't know. But one thing is sure. The world of the kingdom won't be less of a place to enjoy than the world we know today. It's going to be much greater. The beauty and suitability of the kingdom earth won't be less than the beauty and enjoyment of the world today. On the contrary, it will be far greater, far greater than even greater than your dreams can imagine. And while there is so much we can't know about that place, there is still much that we can know. See, our goal in this study is to learn what we can in a short time so that our understanding of, of that time would grow. And as we come to understand more about what life in that place will be like, we can look forward to it even more. And as you think about the kingdom life, you'll begin to live more for that life rather than for this life. And you'll realize how fleeting this life is because of the promised inheritance that we will have. And because there's a lot we could say about that, about the kingdom, we need to approach this section of our study in sections. Okay. So first we study changes in the order of creation and in nature, including geography, borders, government of the land. Secondly, we will study the pe the people in the kingdom and the quality of daily life in that time. Thirdly, we're going to study Jesus's place in the kingdom, including the nature of worship and the new kingdom temple. And finally, we're going to study the culminating event of the kingdom, the war of uh, people say uh, people Gog uh, of Magog. People always refer to that. We'll talk about that. But let's start with the way creation changes during the kingdom period. And that study begins with a look at the past. You know, remember when Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord responded to their sin with a series of, of pronouncements. It says in Genesis 3, Genesis 3, verse 17, then, then, then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, curses the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, 
and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the Lord's respond. Uh, the Lord responded to Adam's willful sin, uh, sin by by cursing the ground or the earth itself. God placed the earth under a curse, and a curse from God is pronouncement of judgment, resulting in destruction. So the earth will one day be destroyed and be replaced. Now, in the meantime, the nature of creation also changed, starting with the need for for mankind to toil. Uh, to produce food from the ground, the Lord declares that the earth would produce thorns and thistles naturally. So apart from the toil of man, the earth would produce weeds and unhelpful plants. And only by the sweat of his brow would man be able to produce the field that's required. So before the curse, we enjoyed life in a garden that produced all the food required without any work at all. No weed came up. No unhelpful plants crowd out the good ones. Adam needed only walk outside the door, and he found all the food he wanted. Furthermore, the days of mankind will be numbered, meaning life would have an end called death. So the spirit of Adam died in the moment he ate of the fruit, and now his physical body would die also. Everything that came from the ground was cursed, like the ground itself, which meant the physical body of man was to die. Likewise, the animal kingdom, which also was made from the earth, would also die. So the Lord instituted a process of decay that results in physical bodies succumbing to disease and frailty over time. Death may also come from instantaneous acts of violence, which are themselves the result of sin. And this was a change from the beginning because the physical body was created to live forever. Without sin, Paul explains in Romans, there would be no death, either for us or for any other creature. So after the fall, the order of creation changed in fundamental ways to include difficulty working, the land and death of the body. So then later, following the flood, the Lord made more changes to creation, specifically to the animal kingdom. Remember Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. With everything that creeps on the ground, with all the fish in the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. So the Lord gave mankind permission to eat animals, obviously, for food after the flood. Prior to that moment, human beings ate only plants as God directed in the garden. Though the text doesn't mention the animals dieting, diet changing, we can assume that animals began to eat uh, each other, obviously, after this time as well. So this change would have been necessary at that time, since in, in the days and weeks after the flood, vegetation would have been sparse. So without meat to eat, animals would have starved. Likewise, a change in the earth's climate following the flood made it more difficult to grow crops. So then to protect the animals from a quick extinction, the Lord leveled the playing field by placing the fear of man into animals. The animals were previously unafraid of men and of each other. But now predator-prey relationship was established. 
Animals were adversaries with each other and man with animals. Animals might attack men and men might eat animals. So the world we know where people and animals eat one another, attack one another, ultimately die represents a change to creation's original intent. So likewise, the difficulty with which we work with nature is also a change to the original plan of God. These things were brought about as a result of sin. And in the future, the Lord has a plan to correct all these, the consequences of Adam's sin, but he does it in stages. So during the kingdom, he begins the correction process, and he completes it in the new heavens and the earth that follows the kingdom. See, this is why a lot of people, when they dismiss Adam and Eve and say, oh, it's just nonsense, well, then you don't understand theology. Because when you tie it all together, it it is all intermingled. You can't just dis- disregard it and say, oh, it's, it's utter nonsense. No, it's not. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 <clears throat> says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will die, lie down with a young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you imagine that? I know Miss Wilma, and unfortunately Miss Wilma, if she's still listening, she can't call in because I don't have my, my phone. Um, but Miss Wilma loves bears. She loves bears. Goodness gravy, she loves them. And in this new kingdom, Miss Wilma will be able to just chill out and hang out with all her bears, hold her little baby bears, and the mama bear doesn't huff and puff and blow her house down. No, no, no. She'll be able to hold them, sit by them. You'll be able to swim with sharks. Never have to worry about being bitten. Walk with the polar bears. Could you imagine? Can you just imagine a world where you can sit next to a cobra and have no fear? Or to a spider? I don't know. It would be interesting. One of the first comforting things we learn about the created order of the kingdom is that animals exist in this time as well. You know, I want to say something. This is very important. I often get the question all the time. Will my pet be in heaven with me? Absolutely, positively. No question about it. Because a heaven without our little fur babies wouldn't be heaven at all. So absolutely, you will be reunited with your fur baby. Without question. You know, whenever I get uh, a question about heaven, uh, I always need to be specific about the place and time that I'm that what I'm talking about here. Heaven isn't a single. Uh, let me just say something because it's important to understand. Please hear me out here. 
Heaven isn't a single place or time. Heaven is where Jesus is. As Jesus moves around, and so therefore do we. Heaven is for us, for us begins with the throne room of God after death or the rapture. And that will be our home for a short time. But it's not our permanent home because it's not a physical place to dwell. We're made to live on a physical earth. And so are animals. But since animals don't have, they, uh, they have souls, but they don't have the souls, obviously, that we do, they won't be found in a temporary home, but they are in heaven. So when Jesus brings us back to the earth for the kingdom, Isaiah says we will find animals on earth during the kingdom. But according to Isaiah 11, the nature of the animal kingdom has changed. So predators like wolves and leopards and lions and bears will live, live peacefully next to prey. Lambs and goats and calves. Even more interesting, large and dangerous animals will pose no threat to people. And animals will show no fear of us. Even a cobra poses no risk to a small child. And a young boy can command the obedience of any animal. And without being, without reason to fear us, these animals will cease attacking us. There's no lethal defense needed anymore. In short, all animals can be domesticated now and will obey the will of us. And we will once again have the dominion over the animal kingdom. To be able to communicate with the whales, to be able to communicate with bears, with any animal you want. You know, today, uh, many wild animals simply can't be domesticated because they are unpredictable and, and may revert to their wild instincts. But in this day, the Lord removes completely removes the predator-prey relationship. It's gone. So there will, be, there will be no longer be the hunted or the hunters. And it's a direct reversal of the pronouncement God gave Noah, and it's a step back to the nature of the world at the start. So, so next, the Lord reverses the curse of toiling to produce food in the eternal kingdom. So in speaking about what Israel will experience in the kingdom, the Lord says, life gets easy. Ezekiel 32, verse 25 says this, I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. Also, the tree of the field will yield its fruit, and the earth will yield its increase, and they will be secure on their land. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of their yoke and have delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. So the Lord establishes a covenant of peace with Israel. And that covenant established the nation and their land once more. And in that place, the Lord makes the hills of Israel blessing again. And he says they can sleep in the woods securely without fear, which is a way of indicating they have no enemy. We have no enemies, neither man or beast. But then notice that the tree of the field will yield fruit and the earth will yield increase. So these are terms referring to a natural production of the earth without the need to farm or cultivate the land. It's a direct reversal of the curse of the earth that made life hard and difficult. Now that the curse has been lifted so that working in the field isn't work anymore. And this is true for both Israel and all nations of the earth. So when you hear that we are given an inheritance in the land 
and our life will be one of farming. You need to understand what that means. It's not a hard life. It's just the opposite. Farming is a joy when the land is giving you its produce without the need to prepare the land or even sow the seed. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all the uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and I will not bring famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste desolate and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about, you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. So the Lord says that that the land will be like Eden again, and there will never be again be famine in the land. The Lord will call for fruit and grain to come forth for the people. And how hard, how hard will it be to farm a land producing food at the call of God's voice? Well, it's a great, it's also a great picture of grace. The Lord does the work. We receive the blessing. Now, how does God ensure so much success farming in a desert? Well, it's a fair question, but Isaiah tells us the answer. Isaiah 30, 23 says, Then he will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground and bread from the yield of the ground, and it will be rich, plenty. And on that day your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. Also the oxen and the donkeys, which work the ground, will eat salted fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. On every lofty mountain and on every high hill, there will be streams running with water on the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. The lights of the moon will be as as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter. Like the light of seven days, on the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. After after the Lord rescues Israel, he gives it the good things he promised in the kingdom. When before they suffered deprivation during the time of tribulation, now they they have everything that we, we need. We get great rain and rich, roomy pastures for cattle with plenty to feed. And then we hear that the geography of Israel is very different than it is today. Streams running everywhere on tops of mountains, rain falling wherever they plant. Even more curious, the moon and sun see their brightness increase dramatically. Now, it's not clear whether Isaiah means this literally or whether it's a simply a, a literary device indicating that the optimistic, joyful perspective of, of Israel that is, in this day, the sun will, be, will, will seem brighter. But if it's literal, it brings more questions than answers. How can we survive on a planet with so much light? Well, we can trust that God has a way to accommodate these changes and will still produce a wonderful world. And I'm sure everyone has a fabulous tan at this time. So the creation in the kingdom will be closer to the time of Eden with animals obeying man, no predators killing one another, and the land producing easily. But one thing, 
will not change them. The curse on Satan and the serpent will continue throughout the kingdom period. Remember, back in Genesis 3, the Lord also placed a curse on Satan for his part in the fall. Chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So the serpent was a literal snake indwelled by Satan who took the snake as a disguise to deceive us. And as a result of that moment, the Lord cursed the snake. So the snake was made to give up its legs and crawl on the ground. That tells us that prior to the fall, the snake stood upright, or at least its belly did not touch the ground. But from this point forward, the snake would be against the ground to remind us of our eventual destination, the earth. So obviously the snake was an unwitting participant in that movement and and not to be blamed for the outcome. So the Lord's curse against the snake wasn't intended as a punishment against the animal. Instead, it was a memorial to remind us of that moment and of our true adversary. So for as long as Satan remains and for as long as sin is still a part of life on earth, the snake would assume this form. So does this curse get reversed? For the kingdom period? The answer is no. And thank you for the gifts on TikTok. Thank you. The answer is no. In Isaiah 65, 25, it tells us the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So in the kingdom, Isaiah says the snake continues to eat dust, which is a direct reference back to Genesis 3. In other words, the snake's cursed from uh, form continues unchanged during the kingdom. His form isn't changing because the conditions that led to his new form haven't been reversed. So Satan is still around at this time, though he's bound until the end of the kingdom. So. Let's consider other changes to the borders and geography that take place during the renewing of the heavens and earth. First, Israel will exist in the kingdom, but Israel's borders will be different than they are today or any time in the past. So God establishes new borders for Israel while eliminating the historical enemies of Israel that surrounded her. Today, Israel occupies a relatively a small slice of land against the Mediterranean Sea. And Lebanon is on the north, Egypt on the south, and Jordan and Syria on the east. And this territory is only a fraction of what the nation once possessed at the height of the kingdom under Solomon. And that time, Israel was the dominant kingdom on earth, the superpower of its day. At its zenith, Israel reached well north into Syria, including all of Lebanon and the land east of Jordan. And it stretched downward into Egypt and southern Jordan. Israel has never since controlled so much territory. So we might expect that God would give Israel a grand uh, a grant of land similar to the land they held under David and Solomon. But that's not half of it, literally. So because we well, let's go back into the land that uh, that God promised to Abraham and his descendants in his covenant. Remember he said this. Yep, I will. Genesis chapter 15:18 says, "On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the river, the river Euphrates." 
So here we're going to have to stop um, because I have to, uh, we're going into our um, night prayer. And uh, we'll, we'll continue talking about what is this, this new kingdom looks like. But this is why I tell people, you don't have to be afraid of when the time, you don't have to, don't, don't be afraid of the end times. It's not anything to be afraid of. Because what the Bible tells us what, we, what we're going to expect, what we're going to inherit. And when you know of your inheritance, there's no need to fear. No need to fear. My friends, if you're on Spreaker, I'm going to say goodnight to you guys and see you soon in Bible, uh, in night prayer. <laughs>